Welcome to the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stahl. All right, welcome to our podcast where we cover business in the news and add our legal twist. My name is Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Stahl. And here we are today once again. We missed a whole week, but you didn't record. I thought you were going to record like by yourself or with your imaginary friend. I did, but it was so bad that our editor refused to actually edit it and put it up. So, oh, okay. We'll do the thing that the Wu Tang Clan did and put out one version of it that sold for, of a CD that sold for $5 million or something crazy like that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. But for right now, it's in the archives. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what they did. This is, they took something that was 20 years old or something like that and only produced one version and had an 88 year copyright on it and and all this nonsense very good well speaking of nonsense let's see i'm sure that probably applies (laughs) yep i would say that probably one of the most people say the most important day but i would say probably one of the most worrisome days i mean I, i guess i wasn't too worried but i think a lot of people that put time and money into to weddings it's probably the most stressful, one of the most stressful days they're going to encounter just because so many things have to go right and, and everyone wants everything to be perfect and you know, lots of people show up, everyone you know, things like that. So what if you put a deposit down on a wedding venue, but the wedding venue didn't exist by the time you uh, had your wedding? You think that would be a problem? <laughs> for me, no. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm pretty resourceful. But for most people, yes, of course it would be. Yeah. So that's kind of that's basically what happened here. And this was in Washington state as a bunch of couples. I, I mean, it was, it was more than just one. Cause I believe it was a bunch of them on this case here, but it was a, a bunch of couples put down money for this venue for wedding receptions. The problem is the people that operated the venue knew it was going to be shutting down, but took the deposits anyways. So I think these people probably found out prior to, you know, the wedding actually taking place because the venue shut down so they had i mean maybe not for the ones right away but for the ones down the road a little bit of notice but still they took the deposits knowing that they weren't going to be operating whenever that wedding date was set and probably what happened was the couples were more upset the fact they have to scramble and find another venue than the money side of it but then of course the money side of it came into play as well and there was a pretty hefty uh default judgment for this venue that didn't even show up to the hearing. And what's interesting, so the reason they didn't actually return these deposits, they depended upon this clause in their agreement, which is basically force majeure, which is a fancy word. I think it's French, but it's for some reason, attorneys still use it. I'm sure it may have a Latin root of some sort, which a lot of illegal terms come from. But usually it means some kind of act or, or force that's outside the control of the parties. And usually the legal term of act of God or some kind of war or, or riot or things like that, fire, hurricane, things like that come into play. And which is why when this, apparently what the company first did is they sent out an email basically saying that there was some kind of electrical fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Therefore the venue is not available. And we're laughing because like later on, I found out that fire story was bogus and an email was later sent says, this was not a problem with the building they wrote. It was, a, it was the landlord who chose to end our lease, ending our business. 
I think it was a little more complicated than that. And that's why the, I believe it was, was it the attorney general of the state. Yeah, it was. Yeah. The Washington attorney, state attorney general who basically announced that they were able to get a 304,000 default judgment against the, these guys for taking these deposits, knowing that these deposits would be kept and the venue would not be available because they already got a notice that the lease would be ending. Yeah, when it was actually 59 customers Ouch. that they ended up screwing over on this. And yeah, I mean, with that many people, I don't see how you can just make up a story like, oh, there was a there was a fi- electrical fire and uh, we can't do it anymore. <laughs> you, you don't think any of those 59 people are going to look into that? I, I mean, it just seems kind of doomed from the start, which I believe this was also the couple that didn't show up to the hearing and said they never received anything. Or am I making that up? They definitely got a default judgment, so I think they didn't show up. And you mentioned 59 customers. That's about, I think the the total of a, about $50,000 of deposits were collected. So using my math, it was just under $1,000 each, right? And so that's enough. I mean, that's a, that's a sizable amount for anyone. No one's going to walk away from, from that, that amount of money, at least not silently. Like I said, the, the money isn't even... The, probably the biggest issue. It's this, these people have to find another venue. I mean, venues book up very far out in advance. So for some of these, I imagine some of these couples had dates that were coming pretty close to when this all occurred. So they were probably really scrambling to find something. I think that's the bigger damage here. I think that's why they got hit with, well, I don't know if it's why, but it's maybe some of the reason they got hit with some of these penalties as well. I mean, obviously they were fraudulent, but. And that's what I'm trying to look for here is, you know, we can talk about a little bit about how to handle deposits and, and deposits can be non-refundable. And there is a concept of force majeure that can come into play, but that's not what happened here. And it's hard to understand exactly the, the details of the lease, but they were notified that their lease would be terminated May 21st, meaning that was the last day that they could possibly play host to any events, yet they were taking deposits for afterwards. To give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they, they thought they were going to be able to renew or that they would be able to, if they were behind, that they would be able to catch up with these current deposits. I don't know. But there's definitely some kind of level of misrepresentation or fraud that would go beyond just liability of the company, but go towards these individual owners. And that, that's where the unfairness comes in. They know that this lease may be terminated. There's a high likelihood of it, at least. They're taking these deposits. When it's terminated, they say, okay, well, this is an act of God or a force majeure, and so therefore we're going to keep the deposits. That really is a, seems like a fraudulent scheme to me. Yeah, we don't even get their full side of it because, like you said, it, it was default judgment. So they weren't going to come up with anything good if their plan before was to just say, oh, there was a fire. <laughs> Everything's canceled. Sorry. And keeping the, yeah, like you said, keeping the deposit under normal circumstances would be fine. I mean, for wedding venues, once the people put in the money, not 100% of the couples end up going through with the wedding. So yeah. that's the reason those deposits are in place because for some of these more expensive venues, you get the deposit and you know if someone books a date and then they cancel towards the end, that's one weekend or one Saturday or Sunday, what have you, that you can't have a wedding and you lose out on a lot of money, which could be very valuable. I mean, you're still getting some with the deposit, but those... A pretty big deal. So that's a reason those exist. And those are fine, but not when you completely make up <laughs> your own reasons or know that you're not even going to be around when a lot of these were booked. Yeah. So let's talk about policies in general and start talking about a force majeure. I think this is an interesting kind of concept. 
a lot of these contracts do have this clause and, and it'll say something like a party is not liable for these obligations if they can't perform it because of some kind of flood or fire act of God or whatever, right? And it usually enumerates all these reasons. And let's say you had, let's say these guys had something like that where in the event that happens, a fire, for example, or the building becomes unavailable, for example, through some kind of outside third party act, your deposit can't be refunded still. That clause in itself is ha- maybe problematic because it doesn't seem sensical, but especially if they are the cause of the building not being available because they didn't renew the lease or they don't have any legal rights to the building or they set the fire or they pretend that there's a fire and there's not, that obviously doesn't apply. So there is a balance to, or there is a circumstance where force majeure may come into play and is a, is a valuable tool. But, uh, you know, there are limits to it, just like anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's the point is it's something that's beyond or outside of the control of, you know, the company, whoever's contracting in the agreement. And yeah. so that was something that was completely within or presumably completely in their control. I, I think that if it wouldn't have been, they would have argued that in the case that the attorney general brought and they did it. So it makes me think that it was something that was within their control. And it sounds like that's the case. Yeah. And not only just control, also like they have to also be timely notify the people that this this may happen or if they had a likelihood or or they had a foreseeability that this would actually happen they had an obligation to notify you know and these are all kind of common law provisions that aren't going to be in agreement that are required when you have this type of clause well i'll spend too much on specific contract clauses because i think that's how yeah. we put people to sleep so oh i thought i was actually sleep talking right now so <laughs> Well, veer back around, and I think obviously there should have been some sort of return of their deposits, and but I think return policies in general can be a very valuable tool for businesses if done right. I mean, just think, and I can't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast before. Certain companies have such good return policies that consumers go to those comp- businesses strictly for the return policy. Or if it's between two places, like Nordstrom's, for example, their return policy is well known as just being you can return something, you know a piece of clothing that you buy at any time, essentially. And I don't know if they give you a refund or something of similar value or what the deal is, but they'll, be, they'll give you your money back in one form or another. And so these can be such huge positives for, for companies. And on the flip side, it can be a big negative too for if you're on the other end of it and your return policy is terrible. Or if you're like Ulta that kept someone's sales tax on return, well, I think they ended up giving it back to them. But at least when somebody went to return something at Ulta, which is a cosmetic store, or I don't know how to describe yeah, it. Yeah, Ulta Beauty, I think is the name. Yeah. Interesting enough, they didn't refund the sales tax. They ended up giving some kind of gift card, but technically didn't return the sales tax still, which I'm sure the gift card would have been more than the sales tax, but still they should give cash back, <laughs> really. And and that, that's the general rule. Generally, when, when someone returns something with a receipt, it's state specific that you have to give back the sales tax. But there are some rules in other states that sometimes if you don't have the receipt, then technically they can give you cash back, but they don't have to refund you the sales tax and very state specific on that. Yeah. I mean, sales tax is a state issue, so it's going to be, it's obviously going to vary a lot state by state, but it's regardless of what the law is, I mean, it's just good business, you know, costs a lot more to get a new customer than to keep a... Oh, and that's absolutely true. Yeah. And so why not just keep the customers that you have, make them happy you know, it'd be a different story if you went to Ulta and you re- you're like, oh, I uh, there's something wrong with this like empty bottle of shampoo. 
that I used all of and I'm returning it. <laughs> or like if you're at a restaurant, you're like, oh, this steak was terrible and you ate all of it. <laughs> it wasn't cooked correctly, but I still ate all of it. Restaurants are pretty good about that too, I guess, or can be. Yeah, well, I, I get frustrated with, with the rest in, in that respect. Sometimes like the food is just so horrible and you want to return it or maybe they give you the wrong thing, but it's just sitting there and you know they're going to throw it away and you're hungry and now you have to like, okay, to be appropriate, you have to not eat it. But <laughs> anyway, so I noticed that also a lot of online retailers that have really good return policies are also very popular in the sense that especially if you're buying clothing and shoes and things like that, people like to, you know, they like to try it on and return it. And if you don't have a really good return policy, then, you know, buying stuff online becomes not as uh, attractive. Zappos, I believe, is one of the online companies that's really known for their, like, no shipping return policy. And, and there's been other companies that have followed suit. And I think that's a very effective way to handle it. Because by the way, refunds and exchanges for the most part, it's actually, there's no law that requires a merchant to give refunds or exchanges. Now there are state specific rules like in California, the retailers who have a policy of not providing a cash refund or exchange, et cetera, with a proof of purchase within seven days of purchase must have like, must inform the consumers about the refund policies very specifically. But other than that, these retailers don't have to do that. So Having these refunds and exchanges, it should be a, definitely a written policy, number one. Number two, you should have one. I think it's in the course of business, but it should be pretty clear. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of fine print associated with it, but simple is better when it comes to communicating with your consumers for sure. But yeah, I think that's what it comes down to is at the end of the day, it's just, you know, whether there's a law or not, it's just good, good business practice to you know, do a refund or return as long as it makes sense. It has to be a cost of doing business that you're going to lose some on certain transactions where the customer's not happy, unless you just have a crappy product, which sometimes you can't allow returns there because then you're just going to get a lot of returns. And then, then you should be questioning the quality of your product, frankly. Yeah, I think everyone's probably had good and bad experiences with this. So some lessons learned is if you're closing your venue, <laughs> don't lie and said you had to have a fire and collect deposits. Otherwise, and that's the only only take home that I can think of. <laughs> I was going to say, don't get married. Then you have to run into the problem. <laughs> that's our two takeaways for this week. Uh, all right. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Yep. Keep it sound. Keep it smart. This has been the Legally Sound Smart Business Show with your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stop. The Legally Sound Smart Business Show is your weekly look at legal news and questions in the business world. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast that is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date, and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening or submitting questions to the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is offered only for general informational and educational purposes. You should not act or rely on any information in the podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and do not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. For more information about the Legally Sound Smart Business Show, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com.